All right, friends, welcome to another episode of White Collar Crimes, where we show you the only color that truly matters in our criminal justice system is green. I'm Ryan Horn, the host. Uh, Merry Christmas, uh, soon to be Happy New Year. Last episode of the year, I thought it would be a good way just to kind of look back at where we're at. You know, we started out the first part of the year uh, talking about a lot of current events and some true crime cases and found that the white collar crime episodes were among the most popular and higher rated episodes and higher reviewed episodes from the audience. So we decided, you know, we would go in that direction and we've certainly enjoyed having you aboard along this journey. We uh, welcome you aboard on this one. And just a recap on what all we've learned this year about white collar crime. You know, we've discussed it a lot in the last several months here and just kind of take a look back. You know, we started out one of the first episodes of this show when we made the focus about white collar crime was, you know, what is a white collar criminal? And if you remember, we discussed there's two schools of thought on that. The white collar crime was actually a term we discussed before, uh, was termed and coined in 1939 by sociologist Edward Sutherland. And he defined it as somebody of wealth, power, influence, stature, something of that sort, committing a crime to enrich themselves even further. So it really had a more narrow definition of who qualified, because if you were not rich or wealthy or powerful under Sutherland's definition, you would not qualify as a white-collar crime. However, in around 1970... We had Edelsberg, who went a little bit further with that and said, no, if it's a crime committed for some type of financial gain through illegal activity, it can be classified as a white-collar crime. And that greatly widened the net on whom can be called a white-collar criminal. And there's two schools of thoughts on that. I've polled my classes that I teach, and the majority of them take the second definition, which is more where I lean, but we do still have some that take the Uh, Sutherland definition and approach of it, and that's completely fine. There's valid arguments that could really be made on both definitions, but we determine, you know, they have to fit one of those two definitions, which, you know, that is a pretty broad definition, but I think more people now lean toward, you know, if it's a crime committed for financial gain, and, you know, especially if it's some type of position or trust, which is a key component we always mention on this show of white-collar crime, then it qualifies as a white-collar crime, and the person committing it qualifies as a white-collar criminal. Um, so we learned who is a white-collar criminal. And though it's a, you know, we talked about different characteristics. We did determine, too, even though there's a lot of consistencies in the characteristics of white-collar criminals, we know that there's not really a one-size-fits-all definition. Um, we do know the overwhelming majority of white-collar criminals are male. They're Caucasian, uh, middle-aged, most over 40. Um, not all terribly wealthy. And the big surprise to me when I remember studying this uh, in graduate school at the University of Cincinnati, they are not all, the majority, in fact, are not college graduates. Uh, the overwhelming majority of them have you know, some level of college, but the overall, you know, the majority of them are not uh, college graduates, which, you know, it's not a, a profession. Business is, you know, where most of these white collar offenses are committed. And you certainly don't need a college degree to succeed in business. You have examples of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, uh, 
you know, Stephen Jobs, on and on, we could give examples of ones that do. So it's not necessarily required for business. So I don't think, you know, when you look at it from that perspective, it's really all that unusual. But, you know, it was something that was a little surprising to me. And most, believe it or not, have had, you know, a few scrapes with the law, believe it or not, before this came about. A lot of people thought that white collar, they're privileged, powerful, never have a record, anything like that. Not entirely true. Um, A good portion of these white collar criminals, even if they're just minor offenses, they have had some brushes with the law. Now, we see when we talk about there are embezzlement cases and things like that, bank fraud, or we see a little bit more of female offenders. You know, we talked about the case, and we will be talking about it here again in a little bit, up in Dixon, Illinois, with the treasurer, where she enriched herself for many, many years, and we've seen other types of cases like that. But again, you know, the profile, the overall majority are white males in their 40s, but white-collar crime can be committed just like any other crime by anybody in any demographic or economic class, in a sense, really. And we looked at some high-profile cases. Uh, We've got some good reviews on those, actually. They've been well-received. The cases that we talked about, Bernie Madoff, you know, the most prolific white-collar crime case of all time. Then we talked about, you know, Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, who, you know, roams the streets of, I think, Australia now, uh, free to prey on whomever he wants. And, you know, still doing well, doing endorsements, living the good life, not paying his... uh, his restitution to his victims that he was owed or ordered to pay by the court, but he's living a good life despite, you know, ripping off people out of, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And we discussed a famous case I also remembered studying at the University of Cincinnati, the Fort Pinto case in Indiana. And if you remember on that case, that is the first time in U.S. history that a corporation was charged with first-degree murder. Um, now, as you remember, that was not successful. They did not, you know, pull this off. Uh, the court did rule that you cannot, you know, charge a company with first-degree murder because, you know, the corporation is not a person, and for first-degree murder, you got to prove intent. And as we talked about with these corporations, especially when they're as powerful as Ford, it is very difficult, nearly impossible to nail it down to just whom is the brains behind it, the intent. We know the Ford Pinto was very shoddy, very dangerous product. The gas tank, you know, was near the bumper, exploded upon very light contact. You know, it happened in, near Elkhart, Indiana, where the girls in the Pinto was, they were rear-ended by a van, burst into flame, killed three young women. Uh, happened more often in other, or happened uh, in other parts of the country, and there were certainly hundreds of injuries from it. And we learned that, you know, Ford did this knowing that it was defective and still put it out anyway because they weren't willing to spend at that time about $11 a pop to fix the problem. Calculated it and figured out that ah, it's just more worth it to, you know, have people die. Human life's worth about 200000 We set aside X amount for lawsuits. We should be good. Now, they did suffer a little bit of a, you know, PR nightmare from this. But at the end of the day, nobody was brought to justice as far as murder because, you know, the courts have said you can't charge a corporation with murder, and, you know, they didn't bring any individual charges against any Ford executive. So on the criminal end, nobody paid any justice for this. Any time was, you know, served or anything like that. Now, you know, there were lawsuits filed, and I'm sure they paid out dearly to the victims' families, but the victims or their families are out forever, the loved one, and nobody served any time in jail, any criminal type of charge for that. But we did see a case, and it's another one I like studying, and again, another one I studied at the University of Cincinnati, 
which was the case of Stuart Parnell, if you'll remember, the Peanut Corporation of America. That is a rare time when justice actually got done on a white-collar crime case. Somebody actually got a pretty good sentence, and 28 years, exactly to be exact, is what Mr. Parnell got. And if you remember on that case, that was a case where they sent out these faulty salmonella-tainted peanuts all throughout the country. They did several products, peanut butter, dog treats, ice cream, candy, you name it. Very big corporation there. Uh, had plants, I believe, in Georgia and also Texas, if I'm recalling correct- correctly. But anyway, it goes out and some people get very sick. Hundreds get sick and actually about nine people died. Uh, they did bring charges against Purnell in the federal system and he was brought to justice. Again, sentenced to 28 years in prison, which at his age at that time, I think he might have been around 60 or somewhere in that area. Pretty much a life sentence, so he'll most likely die in prison or you know be near it when he gets out probably. So it was a rare time when there actually was some justice done on a case like this because the overwhelming majority of the time unfortunately it is not you know again with the Ford situation and countless others like that or with Belfort they if they do get a prison sentence it's very light now Bernie Madoff was the exception to that he ended up dying in prison and you know no way he was ever getting out he got a very deserved and harsh sentence but a lot of times doesn't happen that way and we've seen other types where they get away with, you know, death, not just the Ford Company, but you remember the case of the W.R. Grace Company in Montana, the mining company that was in unleashing asbestos into the entire town, took an entire town down. We've covered this case in some of my white-collar crime courses that I teach, and again, they face civil liability from that, but none of the W.R. Grace uh, officials did any time in prison. They were acquitted, even though they poisoned an entire town that depended on the mining. You know, once the mine went down, that was it for this town. It was a town, I don't remember if I recall right, maybe three, four, five thousand people. And it completely went under, basically. It was taken down by asbestos. And a lot of people died, and a lot of people got really sick. And they were reeling from this for quite some years to come, actually. And, you know, they did, just like a lot of times, they paid out civilly, but criminally, nobody ever went to jail for that, even though people died, and it was proven through documentation in court that they knowingly were, you know, poisoning an entire town with this asbestos. Uh, Their employees were being poisoned with it, taking it home, and in turn, their families and everybody in the community suffered for it. So, not always justice is done, for sure, in criminal court. You know, civil court is sometimes the only recourse the victim's families get but in this case, certainly there wasn't, uh, that wasn't done in this case. And we discussed medical fraud. That was, uh, got some pretty good uh, reviews on that. A lot of you seem to like the, the episode when we talked about medical fraud, and we'll probably be covering that more in the coming year here in 2022. Uh, certainly is a huge part of white-collar crime because it's a service almost everybody uses. And if you remember, we discussed why it's so easy for fraud to happen. Medical care is a very rare product that we all consume because it's probably the only one we consume that we don't buy it ourselves and handle it all right there. You you know, because who handles it overwhelmingly? Your insurance does. You uh, get the product or the service, so to speak, but how it's going to go through and how much it's going to cost you and everything like that a lot of times is a guessing game till it, you know, filters down the pike and you, you get the bill and you're billed for it. So you don't always really know 
And this allows, as we saw, for a chance for fraudulent billing. We've talked about a case where a doctor was billing for surgeries he never performed. He was. There was another case we talked about where somebody was, a doctor was uh, actually performing procedures on people that did not need them and making a fortune on it or double billing or anything like that. And, you know, like I said before, it's easy for people to fall victim to this. If any of you have ever looked at your billing statements you get from your health care provider, they're, they're, they can be a bit confusing for anybody. So it's a crime that can affect really almost anybody and almost anybody can be a victim of. And we've certainly seen how greed has fueled the opioid crisis and unfortunately probably really will uh, if you live in the Midwest like I do or the southern U.S. and places like that. Horrible what it's done to our area. And we've talked about the Purdue Pharma case. You know, again, all they paid out was civilly and they, you know, quote unquote, got banned for a while, but they're still going to be able to start other businesses and prey on people because the family that was behind, behind Purdue Pharma were, you know, opportunists and, you know, they basically fueled our epidemic that we have now. And it is an epidemic. I know, you know, in my work through as a probation officer, I have lost clients that have overdosed on, you know, some of these uh, drugs and, it is a real thing what it's doing, and it's a very harmful thing what it's doing to our communities. And people made money off of it, a lot of money, uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to be, in in fact. And although they paid out, you know, a huge fine, that was all they paid out. Nobody from the Purdue company did a day in jail, to my knowledge, even though they are very much responsible for a lot of death and a lot of misery. I don't know anything hardly that's wrecked more havoc and has caused more problems in society than drug abuse and opioid abuse. It's, you know, some of the most common cases we see of drug abuse are not the illegal drugs that are out there, crack, cocaine, hair, you know, things like that. It's a lot of this over-the-counter, uh, Oxycontin and, you know, some of these prescription-type drugs, drugs. Horrible what they've done, but people have made money off of it. And if you don't have a conscience and you don't mind making money off people suffering like that, then, you know, you're willing to do it, I guess. And they were, and, you know, other than punished for it a little bit financially, that's the only uh, pain and suffering they endured from it, and they're free to move on. And if you remember, for a few weeks there, we visited that it's not always just the businessman and the rich, powerful, you know, wealthy guy that's doing it. Sometimes the government itself that's sworn to uphold the law and protect its citizens uh, commit forms of white-collar crimes themselves. We discussed uh, cases such as New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin lined his pockets for a lot of years, even during the Hurricane Katrina crisis. And we also looked Illinois right here in my home state, Illinois Governors George Ryan and Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, both of whom have done time in prison and both of whom were just recently released not too long ago. Uh, George Ryan is up, I think, now in his late 80s and not in the best of health, but he was released. And if you recall that case, we talked about where he was doing play-to-pay, so to speak, here in Illinois. He was selling driver's license, I mean, you know, driver's licenses, CDLs, things like that to unqualified people for the right donation to his campaign. And, uh, you know, somebody that was not qualified was driving a semi and crashed and killed a family. And now, I think they were in Wisconsin, if I recall correctly. And paid for it with their lives and he lined his pocket through government service now he did do some time in prison for it but you know probably not as much for some ordinary person that's committed probably far less but he did at least do time 
Same with Blagojevich. That's a very famous case that got national headlines when, you know, he tried to sell what was then Senator Barack Obama's Senate seat when he was elected president. Prior to him taking office, he uh, tried to sell that seat to the highest bidder and was involved in some other pay-to-play scams that we discussed while he was governor of Illinois. And it was, you know, like I said, also kind of a tragic case. He really could have been an American success story, born to immigrant parents who didn't come from wealth, but kind of climbed the political ladder. And, you know, he could have been really an American success story. And, you know, his chapter is not really written yet. We don't really know what's going to happen with Blago, as he's called here. Uh, if you recall correctly, last year he was, his sentence was commuted by President Trump. Now, a lot of people got that confused and threw a fit and, you know, oh, he's pardoned, da, 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 da. There is a difference. A commuted sentence is not a pardoning. You know, his sentence was cut short and he was let out of prison a couple years early, but he still has the felony conviction on his record. He's still been disbarred from practicing law or anything like that. I think, you know, from his Illinois pension or anything like that, the conviction stays where with a pardon, it doesn't, you know, that's when it's gone, taken away, basically almost like it didn't happen. That was not the case here, even though his sentence was commuted and he was let out of prison a little bit early. And if you remember, we talked about the big short scandal, and that wasn't all that long ago. You were looking about 2007, 2008, when the housing bubble burst and nearly wrecked our economy, for real. Uh, You know, I'm very much, I'm sure all of you remember that. It drove the stock market down. Uh, Auto industry went in the tank for a while. Gas prices went through the ceiling. Very rough time. Of course, we're in pretty rough times now, in my opinion, with inflation and high gas and food prices and things like that that we're looking at. And Certainly, this was a rough time, too. I remember it well, and uh, nobody went to jail, or very few did. Some little low-level people that we discussed, some of the low-level minions, but none of the high-time big players in this. And it was all basically predatory lending, if you remember we discussed this. There were people getting loans for homes. There was in no way they could uh, could afford. They were brought in and teased with these what we call ARMS, adjustable rate mortgages, brought in and given a little tease, and then... You know, once that teaser rate was over and the new rate kicked in, oftentimes it was way out of what people could afford. People were not having to really provide much verification of income for these loans, and people were defaulting, and, you know, homes were going in for closure all over the country. You know, and again, came very close to uh, breaking our economy. You know, a lot of bailouts and things were going on at that time, if you recall, and, you know, those were some a subject of some controversy at the time, but... You know, if they hadn't, if the bailouts hadn't have occurred, then, you know, who knows what would have happened. Uh, we had banks that were closing at that time. You know, a lot of uh, financial companies that were giants in the industry at the time, Bear Stearns, all these other ones, down for the count. Very rough time. But what fueled this? Greed. It was an easy way to make money, loaning money to people, knowing they're not going to be able to afford it. And in the end, taking the house back and having the property seized and on to another sucker and that went on for a while but thankfully eventually that you know did get brought to an end but who knows if the next uh, scam like that that could potentially crash the economy might be just around the corner you know you just don't know and we even we looked about some even less known cases although i know some personally affected like by the zeke reward scandal that was a scam that uh on penny stocks people were brought in overwhelmingly ridiculous unbelievable returns but you know we talked about when we you know charles ponzi the original ponzi scheme did a show on that to show you and that's one of the warning signs we asked to look out for you know if the results and the returns are way beyond normal and and that old saying if it sounds too good to be true it probably is 
it certainly fits the mold here. That was the case there. And we've tried to educate folks out there to look out for the elderly because we did a show on that. The elderly are certainly targeted, especially this time of year when people are feeling maybe a little more generous, a little more charitable, or to be frank, it's kind of sad, but when people are more lonely, they're willing to talk to just about anybody, even if that somebody is trying to defraud them. So we gave some ways to look out and we ask you continue to look out for your elderly friends and family because sadly they are probably the top group that is targeted sometimes for these white collar crimes. And we even saw some cases where people like St. Louis attorney uh, J. Douglas Cassidy, he was a guy that ran a funeral home scam and basically was setting up a trust that people thought they were buying to pay for a funeral for their loved ones and he was taking the money and living high on the hog and the funeral homes were stuck to pay the difference because by state laws in most of these states their investment was protected so funeral homes were out to foot the bill nearly putting a lot of them probably out of business and again like I said I don't know what kind of low life would do some scam like that and take advantage of of deaths like that and and people's sadness and misery and we've all been through funerals they are they're not you know they're a torturous event to go through sometimes but uh mr cassidy is deceased so we can't have him on the show to ask him but we just talked about ways that uh like that then you know it wasn't a big case although it was featured on american greed but you know and zeke rewards the same thing although a lot of people nationwide were victimized by that and i'm hoping maybe they do an episode on that on american greed but we'll see and if you remember we talked about the old queen of mean leona helmsley the hotel heiress famous for the stay and we don't pay taxes only little people pay taxes and she was a fraudster known to not pay taxes not pay her contractors And her ruthlessness and arrogance and the way she treated people eventually brought her down. Uh, Former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani was the prosecutor there at the time that took her down. She did a little time in prison and, as we said, kind of died in mostly loneliness and obscurity because the way she treated people. And our last episode that we just did, remember I had Greg Lynchett's occasional guest on sometimes. We talked about some NCAA scandals. How even in college, even in college sports, there are people that have enriched themselves illegally. And, you know, we talked various ways, different schools, different programs, different coaches have done that. And we will be doing one coming up on the NFL concussion scandal. You know, what did the NFL know and when did they know it? Because we know through the court lawsuits and settlements, they did know players were suffering from concussions. And this was having very harmful effects on their health later in life. And they did nothing to stop it until they were caught. So we'll be talking about that coming up down the road. And it's been a great year having you aboard. Uh, Love doing the show. Love having you aboard. Uh, Like us on Facebook, like I always said. You know, uh, there's a section on Anchor. That's our host company here. You can donate to the show as little as a dollar a month. We love to have you donate. We love to have you tune in and listen to the show, most importantly. Uh, Check out my website, ryan-horn.com. Also provide voiceover services if you like. And we always encourage you to support your local shelter. Your next best friend is waiting to adopt there. All of our pets are rescues from shelters. And we always encourage you to do the same thing. And we want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Wish you a Happy New Year. Again, we certainly have had loved having you aboard on this journey. 
got people that listen from all parts of the country, got people even that listen from other countries, and we're certainly glad to have you aboard and hear about some of our famous white-collar crime cases that we've had in this country. So be good to each other, look out for each other. You know, next scam's just around the corner, and any one of us could be victimized. So look out for each other, and, yeah, be nice to each other, and hope you all have a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we will see you in 2022. God bless everybody.